We are working our way verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Acts, as is our practice uh, most Sunday mornings. Our study has been titled Discovering the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And as we've been keeping track and following through, we've seen that behind all of what's happening here in the book of Acts, behind the gospel being spread from Jerusalem, where the Holy Spirit was poured out on those Jews that were waiting, had been instructed to wait for the outpouring of the Spirit. God pours out His Spirit, and the Spirit of God continuing to work in the lives of people. That's how God works His Spirit, moving in the lives of His people to accomplish His work for His glory. And that's what we see in the book of Acts. So it's not human-driven, it's Spirit-driven, and humans, me and you, we get to be involved with what the Spirit of God is doing in our lives. And to me, that sounds like an awesome opportunity. Whatever, if God is doing something, and we believe that God is, and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him, I start to seek him, and I get to be part of what God is doing on planet Earth at this time. And to me, that's exciting. And so Paul and Silas now had formed a team. They've included Timothy in their team, the young intern, the ministry intern, and they've added Luke, the physician, because we know Paul, wherever he goes, he gets in trouble. He needs a traveling doctor to be with him. Treat head injuries, minor cuts and bruises, and major cuts and bruises. So they've got Luke with them. This team of four has, they sought for some leadership. Where do we go, Lord? Where do you want us to go? They got blocked here and they got blocked there. And then Paul had a vision of the man from Macedonia. And they said, ah, that's it. We're supposed to go to Europe. At this time, no church in Europe. Doesn't exist in Europe. This is the first missionary trip to Europe. So they got the wind at their backs. They sailed to the port city of Philippi called Neapolis. And now they get into Philippi, this ancient Macedonian city. And as they get there, they meet Lydia down by the river. There's no synagogue. So they meet the women praying by the river. So we pick up in verse 16, having led Lydia to the Lord, now having and staying with them, they're back and forth to prayer by the river, wherever they, they meet to pray. And verse 16 tells us, now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination. If you like to take notes in your Bible, circle that word divination, or maybe your Bible says soothsaying or something like that. You can circle that word and write next to it, python, python. And we'll come back to that. Just remember, right next to that, the word python. That's the Greek word that's there. If you could read it in Greek, it would say this spirit of python met us who brought her master's much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaimed to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. So it seems that they're getting some free press from this woman. Well, really a young girl is more likely. She's a slave girl, not an older woman, but a young girl. She's a slave. We don't know how she became a slave, but she's owned. So everything she does, everything she is, everything a slave makes or performs, all the proceeds go to the master. The slave owns nothing. So if you're a carpenter and you're a slave, by the way, Luke, the physician, was a slave. So slaves, you can't think about slavery in American terms. You have to think about it in ancient Roman and ancient Greek terms. So a doctor could be owned by a family, and Luke was, and so he was a slave. But anything you did or made, none of that belonged to you. All that went to your master. And some people had good masters, and some people had lousy masters. She's got some pretty greedy masters that are profiting from the fact that she is oppressed by a demon, a demonic spirit. 
So it says it right there. She's a slave girl, and she's possessed with this spirit of python or puthon. This, you have to know a little bit about Greek mythology. Ancient Delphi in Greece was the place of the oracle, the oracle of Delphi. The temple to really Apollo was the god of prophecy, the god of fortune telling, god of the future. And so Apollo went to Delphi, and, and this is again according to Greek mythology, and the guardian of the oracle there, or these women, these priestesses that would tell the future under demonic influence, under kind of a, an induced frenzy, so to speak, they would tell the future. And people would go like crazy to um, hear them tell the future. Think about it. If you were a statesman or if you were a military commander and you were about to undertake some journey or some battle, some initiative, wouldn't you want to know how it was going to come out? So before you did it, they would consult these mediums, these fortune-telling women, the priestesses of Apollo. Now, it gets associated with Apollo because the original guardian of Delphi, which they considered to be the center of the universe, the original guardian was a serpent. And according to legend, Apollo killed the serpent and then became then the god over that place. So evidently, there was a temple to Apollo there in Philippi. This girl, a priestess, behind these idolatrous worship, behind pagan worship is a demonic spirit. And under the influence of this spirit, she would get into this frenzy or literally a rave and then would utter some things in unintelligible speech, then utter something in, in Greek that would be understood, and that would be considered the, the fortune of the future. Some debate about how accurate they were, probably very general, much like we're used to maybe going to a fortune teller. You know, you ever been to a fortune teller or palm reader, and they give you some general thing? One time, I was like, I want to, you know, I want to, as a Christian, I want to go and just see what this is all about. Like, just, you know, maybe share the gospel or something. So I go up to the house, and it's got the weird palm reading thing on the door. And so I knock, 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 no answer, no answer. So I knock one time, about to walk away, and finally the door opens, and a woman comes to the door, and she says, oh, I didn't know you were here. I said, well, I'm leaving then. Supposed to be a fortune teller, you know, know the future, didn't even know I was there. This is very common in their culture, and she's proclaiming, it seems to be a good thing, right? I mean, she's walking behind Paul many days, Paul and Silas, and she's following them around, saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And we think that would be, hey, it's some free press, right? Watch what Paul does. The end of verse 18 says, Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, so he knows she's involved in this occult practices, and he knows he picks up on the fact that she's demon-possessed, and that's what gives her the ability to do these things. He says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. So he speaks to this demon in her, and he exercised the demon. He came out in that very hour. Just spoke it to her, and the demon came out of her. But here's the problem. When her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. So far from Paul thanking her and saying, oh, it's so great that you're telling everybody who we are, it's quite the opposite. He gets annoyed with her, and he casts out the demon from her that enabled her to do the things she was doing. Now she can't do it anymore. She can't tell the future anymore. She can't utter these demonic utterances. By the way, an old Greek philosopher called them belly talkers. They would almost speak from their belly, this guttural sound. If you could, you could just imagine almost like a demonic voice. So that's not the kind of PR you necessarily want if you're a Christian. Paul, I think, doesn't want this spirit of divination, this Apollo worship to be connected 
with his message. And by the way, just because she's saying these men are servants of the Most High God in a pagan culture, they may not understand that as Jehovah God, the God of the Bible, the God of the Jews. That could be Zeus. Because Zeus was the head of the Greek pantheon. And just because they say these men show us a way of salvation is more literal, a way of salvation, even the, the Caesars were called saviors. So the message is a little vague, could be interpreted different ways. But either way, I think that there's a danger to being connected to this woman who's connected to darkness. Remember, Paul says, or excuse me, yeah, Paul says, what fellowship has light with darkness? See, there's some times when, although a person might be saying the right thing with their mouth, their lives are living a different story. And that's not the kind of PR Paul is wanting for the gospel as he comes into this new city. He doesn't want to see this connected to anything else. So he casts a demon out of this girl. And the real problem with this is that the masters of this slave girl are pretty upset because they just dipped into the pockets of these guys. All they were interested in was the profit they were getting, and they benefited from her oppression. And don't you know there's still those institutions in our world today? There are institutions that benefit because you're unhealthy, or because you're, and I'm not just speaking physically, physically, mentally, all these different areas, materially, there are those institutions that benefit from you not being whole. That's why the name of Jesus meets with such a reaction. You know, why doesn't the name of Buddha meet with such a reaction? Why doesn't the name Muhammad meet with such a reaction? It's the name of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus sets people free. And when free people can't be controlled. See, we're free not from, we're free for, free to worship God. He now is our master, and when he's your master, you're a lot less vulnerable in life because you have the truth. And Jesus said, the truth sets you free. So now that I know the truth, you can't manipulate me anymore. I love that about the word of God. So many people are so easily manipulated in life because they have these needs, perceived needs, real needs, whatever they are, that are unmet. And so that leaves you weak. But see, Jesus comes into your life, and he makes you whole. He meets all your needs. Yes, we still need money, got to go to work, got to earn a living, all that stuff. I understand. We need food. We need air to breathe. I get all that. But I'm talking about deeper spiritual needs. And so there are many people that, because of the name of Jesus, they get very angry. You notice that in your life, that maybe there's someone that gets upset when you get free, when you get saved, or you know someone that got saved, because now, well, it can be for many reasons. But man, I love that about Jesus, because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. And so you have to be careful with money because the Bible says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And there's a lot of places in the world that are just interested in money and in your money and not in you. Even in religious circles. Wouldn't you say that the church, some areas, some parts of the church have a history of keeping people oppressed so that people can profit off of God's people? It was the same in Jesus' day. Isn't that what the bazaar of Annas there is the God's people would bring their offerings and their sacrifices to God. Well, they had the whole marketplace there and they would jack up the prices and take advantage of God's people. And that's why Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers after he entered the temple after Palm Sunday. Because God doesn't want people being used to benefit people's pockets and financially. So you know someone is really interested in you when they're interested in you being set free and not you being a tool or a pawn or manipulated for their own good. So beware, if someone has a vested interest in you staying in a certain condition for their own benefit, I would beware because the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. 
and behind a lot of institutions, behind men's institutions, if you track it back, a lot of times there's money to be made. Follow the dollar bills. Why, again, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And we see that right here, don't we? It was the love of money that was behind. They didn't care about her. You know, it's, think about the sex slave trade industry that's been getting a lot of press in the last number of years. The, some of these uh, Christian groups have been supporting, uh, freeing those women. If there was no need for that, then it wouldn't be profiting. See, the things that where people have their needs, their addictions, their things, that's where people make a profit off of people's hurt areas and sicknesses. So if those areas are taken care of, can't make a profit anymore. And this young girl, she gets set free by the Apostle Paul, but her masters, verse 19, saw that their hope of profit was gone. That's what they cared about. They didn't care about her being free. They cared about their profit. And they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. So they take Paul and Silas and they drag them into the marketplace to the Agora. This is kind of the common area, the, the place where the crowds were and where people were. This is where the court was. This is where the prison was, all right there in that area. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews, notice Timothy's not there and Luke is not there. It's just Paul and Silas. Those guys were, at least had Greek roots. You know, Timothy had a, a Greek parent and Luke was Greek, but Paul and Silas were Jews. And so notice right away, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city and they teach customs which are not lawful for us Romans to receive or observe. Notice right away, whether or not these accusations are true or false doesn't really matter. They have played the race card. Did you see that? Automatically, they make the issue about us and them. Us and them. Those Jews, anti-Semitism already being seen right here in this area, those Jews and us Romans. Be careful of that. They know these guys are pros. These guys are pros at manipulating. They're pros at making a profit. They're pros that work in the crowd, and they know how to work the crowd. So they begin to say the right words to elicit the response they're looking for. Again, whether they're true is not a relevant thing. Don't you know that sometimes that what's true doesn't really matter? What matters is what sells. You know, I can get off on a tangent on this, and I won't, but think about media. Think about how the media loves to play people against each other. For what? For a profit. They have an invested interest in causing controversy to keep people upset because it sells news. What matters less is what's true. What matters more is how can we create a controversy? And so that's what they've done here. They've created this controversy. The Jews, the Romans, well, here's what they're doing. They're teaching customs which are not lawful for us. They're just messing everything up. Then the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes, Paul and Silas's clothes, and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So there's no real trial. They get accused and condemned right away. They order them to be stripped and beaten with rods. They would get a maximum of 39, 40 minus 1 beatings. These guys that do this are the thugs. These are the paid thugs that are paid to elicit hurtful reactions and hurtful things in their lives. And so they put a hurting on Paul and Silas. And I make point of this because we read the words, but it's hard to get that mental picture. 
they are putting a hurting on Paul and Silas's back with these rods. The multitude is rising up. There's a whole frenzy. Not only do they beat them, they don't let them go, but then they're commanded to put in maximum security. Verse 24, having received such a charge, they put them into the inner prison, the belly of the beast, you could say, the darkest place in the prison, and they fastened their feet in stocks. Again, these stocks are not meant to be comfortable. They were pieces of wood with notches for legs and arms, and once they'd put you in there, they'd spread your legs as far as they could. It's meant to be painful, and then they'd strap you in with iron shackles, and then that would be shackled to the floor, and you were stuck there. It was meant to be torture. You know, don't picture a jailer who goes, hey, are you guys okay? I mean, is that too tight? Should I, should I loosen that a little bit? I mean, are you uncomfortable? You know, can I bring you something? No, it was meant to be torturous. And so that's where we leave Paul and Silas. Now, put yourself in the story. They had the vision of the Macedonian man. They had the wind at their back. We feel like we're really doing the Lord's will. Then they had well, a little bit of success with Lydia. She gets saved. And now they're certain there's going to be great success coming their way. You know, in past uh, mission trips, multitudes of people get saved. And now things turn for the worse, don't they? Now, I don't know about you, but at this point, I'm going, okay, Lord, what, did I miss it? I thought it was the Macedonian man. I thought that was it. Are you questioning at this point, if this is you, are you questioning, like, where did we go wrong? God, what are you doing? Do you love me? I mean, what, why are we in this situation? I mean, you know all the stuff we say. I say that when someone's driving too slow in front of me on Route 15. Lord, where are you? I thought you loved me. You know I'm late. You know, I got places to go. I'm doing your work, Lord. I'm late for my appointment. Oh, and I make a point of this because, you know, it's easy to relegate Paul and Silas to some spiritual, you know, place where, well, that's just them, but that's not something I should expect of me because we're going to see how they respond to this. And I want you to know there's nothing different between you and Paul and Silas. We like to lower the bar for ourselves say, well, that's them, but that doesn't apply to me. There is no difference. Same Spirit of God that dwells in Paul and Silas is the same Spirit of God that dwells in you and in me. Same God. Now, back to the prison. At midnight, how long had it been? We don't know. They've been there all evening. At what time did they get arrested? We don't know. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. So it's the first Christian concert in Europe, and it's in a prison. Now, if this was me, I don't know, I put myself in the story, I've got this double underlined in my Bible, because mine would have said at midnight, Steve was whining and complaining like a baby, wondering whether God was even real, wondering whether God existed, and having all the doubting his faith, and yeah, and we see that reaction. We see that kind of reaction from John the Baptist in a way, right? Are you the one? I mean, what? I heard you're the one that's supposed to set people free, and I'm still in prison. Because remember, sometimes we read a story like this, and there's people, I can guarantee you, there's people in prisons right now all over the world for their faith. And they know this story. And they read this story and go, why are we still here? It's been a year. It's been two years. It's been three years. And you think about through the Bible, Joseph in prison. Two years left there, if I'm remembering correctly. Forgotten there. You know, we've got Peter, who gets set free. We've got John the Baptist, who gets beheaded. So you see all over the board, there are some people get set free from prison, and some people die in prison. 
And they're all God's people. And it's the same God. And so you go, well, why is that? Because God's doing what God is doing. Every person has their call and their role in life to play. And once your service has been finished, guess what? You get to go home. I mean, think about it. If you've been to Iraq or if you've served in the military and you did your tour of Vietnam or, or any of the wars, you go overseas and you do your tour, you do your thing, you're serving, it's hard, it's dangerous, it's deadly. And then if you live through that, you get to go home. When it's time for you to go home, you don't go, oh, man, it was just getting fun. No, you go, I can't wait to get home. I can't wait to get home. And so whether or not you're in the prison, whether or not God releases you from the prison like he did for Peter, like he's going to do for Paul and Silas, and they don't know it yet, or that's where you stay for a number of years, or that's where you die. That's the Lord's. And it's easy to think, well, just because God did it here means he's got to do it in my life that way. They were, Paul knew, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. Lord, my life is yours. And so happens that Paul, God was not done with Paul and Silas yet. He had more work for them to do. So he lets them out. But what I notice about this is the stark contrast to probably what I would be doing. Here they are. Now, don't picture prison. Don't picture American prison with basketball hoops and weight benches and, you know, three squares and a cot and all that stuff. Don't picture that. They're sleeping on the floor if they can sleep. Now, we don't know what position they're putting the stocks in, but it's very uncomfortable. There's no pillow. It smells like urine and feces, and there's rats, and it's dark. There's no light. And we don't even know, are Paul and Silas in the stocks together? Are they separated? But it is pitch dark in the inner prison. They're in the dungeon. And this is brutal. Now, praying, I'm with them on that. I'd be praying, Lord, get me out of here. Wouldn't you? That'd be natural. Sure. I'm not sure that's what they're praying. Because they know they're not there because the Romans put them there. Because Paul knew they were led there by the Lord. He knew. Had the vision. This is where God called us. And so when things got bad, they didn't go, oh, maybe we were wrong. Maybe we, we missed it. So we're going to talk about how they might have prayed. But that's not... You know, that doesn't surprise me. I'd be praying, you'd be praying. But the singing hymns to God, singing praises to God, that's what really gets me. And I read that, I go, yeah, I don't know if I'd been doing that. Would you have been doing that? First of all, there's no hymnal. So just from a practical standpoint, how many hymns you got memorized? I was on a trip to Ukraine, my first missionary trip. Forty of us go to Ukraine. We're visiting some orphanages. It's a great trip. And we're on the bus. And you know, God's people... We want to sing. So we're all on the bus together, and somebody says, hey, we should sing. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, let's sing. The problem is, nobody knew any songs by heart. So someone would say, what about uh, this song? And we'd all sing like two lines and be like, um, da, 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 nah. what's the next line? We don't know. So then someone would say, well, how about this song? And we'd start to sing that one, and we didn't know that one either. So we ended up singing Flintstones, Meet the Flintstones. I was like, this is horrible. We're Christians, and all we can sing is show tunes. Um, this is a true story. So I got home, and I said, I'm going to learn Scripture memory songs. And I learned about 25 Scripture memory songs. And then I taught them to my kids. So no matter where I go, whether I have my Bible with me or not, you know the Psalms is a hymnal. You got a hymnal, and if you write that on your heart, you always have a song. You know, there's and, at least 185 songs in the Bible. So you could say, well, I'm going to memorize one of the Psalms. How about Psalm 119? Go for that one. It's the longest song in the Bible. So we could maybe fill next Sunday, we'll lead us in song, we'll sing Psalm 119. It's like 
huge. And then we'll be like, okay, we sang a song, now it's time to go, because that was an hour singing that song. So don't try to memorize that one. But maybe they were singing Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in thee, Lord. The humble will hear thereof and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my circumstances? No. From all my problems? No. From all my fears. I wonder if that's one that they chose to sing. But the cool thing to me is, is that they were singing it all. I mean, how did this start? This looking at each other, sitting next to each other there in the prison. Did Paul go to Silas? Hey, Silas, you doing okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm doing okay. I mean, cool that they were there together. That's encouraging. Like to have someone, to go through something with somebody else, that to me is always encouraging. They had each other. They had the Lord. And I wondered what the conversation was all night. Paul's like, I can't get this song out of my head. And so Paul just starts to sing. You know, maybe it's Psalm 34. Maybe it's something else. Maybe just a, a little chorus like, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. And he begins to sing that. And Silas joins in, pure and holy, tried and true. And they go on singing. All of a sudden, the moaning and the wailing. See, you weren't in prison because you were awaiting trial and, and maybe you were going to get sentenced to a month. You were in prison because you were on death row. And so these guys, whoever these prisoners that are listening, notice there are prisoners listening. Whoever they are, all of a sudden they hear something they probably never heard before come out of that prison. Singing praise to God. No doubt praising him for his character. No doubt exalting his nature. And they're listening. And all of a sudden, I imagine that maybe they complained at first, hey, you guys, shut up over there. Knock it off. But maybe as they continue to sing, all of a sudden the prison got quiet. And they began to listen and think and stir. You see, God's people are singing people. And not just at the concert. And not just at the worship time. It's easy to sing here. And we don't do that. It's easy to sing when the lights are on, the fog machine, and it's some great name is there leading the concert, a great worship team. That's when it should be easy. And we can't even sing there. If you can't sing here on Sunday morning, you ain't never going to sing in the prison. Because singing is not something we do based on how we feel. Did you catch that? Psalm 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. That was a determination of his will. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. You see, if you live your life by how you feel, then you go, I don't feel like praising the Lord. Then your life is going to be up and down and up and down, and you will be a slave to your feelings all the time. Your thought life is going to drive your worship life, and that's not a good thing. What should drive worship life? Truth. And because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he is always worthy of praise, no matter what circumstance you're in. So you can always fix your mind on the Lord. Always fix your eyes on things above. And Paul, this same Paul, writes to the Ephesians about the Spirit-filled life. Let me just read it to you. He says, part of the Spirit-filled life, he says, but be filled with the Spirit. What does that look like? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody where? In your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
See, so Paul says, how can we not sing? God has put a song in our hearts. Even in bad times, even in difficult situations, they are singing praises to the Lord. Now again, do you think they felt like singing praises to God? Probably not. Although I think that they knew that truly, of all the people in that prison, they were really the free ones. See, here's the thing. The one area, the one thing of yours that can never be put behind bars is your mind. So their bodies were in prison, but their mind was free to go wherever it wanted. And it was free to worship God, the best place for it to go. You got to let your mind, your thought life. You see, if your thought life is allowed to run wild at a time like this, again, if that was me, I'd be like, you know, my thoughts would be going a mile a minute in the wrong direction. Yours? Would yours be doing that too? How do you stay sane and focused in the difficult times of your life? God will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are stayed on him for he trusts in him. See, you can't put your mind in prison. And many people are free in their bodies, but their mind is a prison of terrible thoughts, useless thoughts. I mean, so let me ask this question. I'm planning to spend a lot of time here because this is an important thing. What would you have told them to do? What would you have done if you were there? Well, I would have probably complained. I would have yelled. Would that have accomplished anything? No. What could you have done? I mean, you could have done a lot of things, but what would that have accomplished? That wouldn't have gotten you out. It wouldn't have set you free. But by praising, at least it brings a peace to their life. I can't tell you the benefit of singing praise to the Lord at all times in your life. I had a friend years ago, he had gone through a divorce, his wife had left him, he was a rotten guy, nobody liked him, he was uh, cheated on his wife regularly, she finally kicked him out. He had been in a Bible study of mine and he called me up and he said, Steve, I got no friends, nowhere to go, can you take me in? Kind of at the end of his rope. So he came, he lived with uh, Helga and I for a short time and until he could get back on his feet and, and I would take him to church. And this one day we were talking and he was just complaining and grumbling and he was angry, he was mad. Get in, the get in the car, we're going to church. So it was a Sunday evening. We went up to Calvary Chapel in Louisa together for their Sunday night service. And all the way up in the car, he was angry. He was, his eyes were, you know, bugging out and, and piercing. And we got there, we started to sing to the Lord. And all of a sudden, his mind was now thinking about the Lord. And his face began to get calmer and his life began to get calmer. Our ride home was so different than our ride there. What made the difference? Did his circumstances change? No, his mind got focused on the Lord and not on his problems. And it changed his emotions. It changed his external way he was even appearing. Praise is so powerful, and God gives us that heart to praise at all times. So singing hymns to God. Prisoners were listening to them. Now watch what happened. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so the foundation of the prisons were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were open, and everyone's chains were loosed. So what happened? As they're singing, Paul and Silas, were they in tune? They're making a joyful noise to the Lord. Because I know that's what I, if I was going to sing there, it wouldn't be a happy tune. It would be, I would not be, I'd be making a joyful noise. That's about what I make is noise. But what happens is God hears it, not just the prisoners. God hears it. And what happens? He starts just to tap in his foot. Now it says earthquake, but that's my, that's my read on it, right? God says, I like that tune. I like what I'm hearing. God starts tapping his foot in time with a song. And it's perceived as an earthquake, 
And this is not just a normal earthquake. I don't know how many prisoners' chains fall off when an earthquake happens. And they recognize this is God intervening. You talk about awe in that prison. Everyone, and not just Paul and Silas's chains fall off and Paul and Silas's door opens. Everybody. And that's what happens when you do this kind of thing. When you praise the Lord, even in adversity. See, they didn't know. They didn't read Acts 16, the last few verses. They didn't know, well, look, Silas, look, we're going to sing and pray and God's going to open the doors and then we're going to get out. So let's sing it. Let's just go through it. They didn't know. They were praising before they knew what was going to happen because they trusted God. And it didn't just affect them. It affected everyone around them. People are watching you. They say you don't know a whole lot about a person because they're like tea bags. People are like tea bags. You don't know a lot about them until you put them in hot water. Then you see what they're really made of. And that's when you really find out, when you go through that test, do you really love God? Isn't that what Job said? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's that fortitude that comes from faith. And so people are watching, and it was watching how you go through, not the good times, not watching how it is when everything's going cool, watching how you suffer. That's where Christians really shine. We shine the brightest in dark times, right? Immediately, all the doors opened. Everyone's chains were loose. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep, seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. So the prison guard, this retired military guy, the military guys would retire in Philippi. It's a Roman province, and so they would retire there. So probably this guy is an ex-Roman commander who's now kind of in retirement, earning a few extra bucks by being a prison guard. And he knows that when you're a prison guard in Rome, your life is on the line. You're responsible for the prisoners. If they escape under your watch, you get the punishment that they would have gotten. You take their place. And so he knows the doors are open. These guys are out of here. I blew it. I'm a dead man. So he takes the sword and begins to, to prepare himself for suicide. He's a dead man anyway. But then he hears a voice from the darkness. Check this out. Verse 28, but Paul called with a loud voice saying, you're going to get what you deserve, you ragged old jailer, you know, that's what you get for putting stripes on my back. Wait a second, does your Bible say that? No, but that's what I would have said. Isn't that how we think? Like, fine, yeah, he's going to get what he deserves. That's what you get for beating a man of God. But not Paul. See, Paul dwells on a higher plane. You know, he dwells with the Lord. And he says, do not harm yourself. For we are, notice, all here. Not a single prisoner left. Now, that, if that was me, I'd have been like, see ya. Thank you, Lord, for answering my prayer. I was praying for the doors to be open. Lord, you did it. I knew you did it for Peter. I didn't know if you'd do it again, but you did it for me. So come on, Silas, let's get out of here. That's what we would have done. But Paul says, you know, I don't know that that was Paul's prayer. What if Paul and Silas were praying, Lord, You've been leading us every step of the way. And I know we wouldn't be here against your will. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. So Lord, show us why you have us here. Lord, show us who we can impact while we're here in this prison. Show us how to start a prison ministry. Maybe that's what they were praying. And maybe when the doors got open, Paul's not looking for how to get out. He's looking for who else needs to really get set free. And so he sees this jailer. He goes, oh, that's our guy. He's about to kill himself. Paul says, stop it. Don't do it. Stop right there. We're all still here. 
that's a greater miracle than the earthquake. So then the jailer calls for light, verse 29. He runs in and he falls down trembling before Paul and Silas. It's bad when you see a military commander trembling. You know it's serious. This guy is undone by what he's just seen and what he's just experienced. He was in inches from death. And now they're all there. He calls them. He runs in, falling down, trembling for Paul and Silas. And he brings them out of the prison. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They'd all been rescued, I guess, from the prison. And this guy says, you know what? I'm in my own prison. I'm inflicting harm on people for a living. It's no good. And whatever it is you got. I mean, can you imagine as he looks at them, he probably sees that thing and he understands it and says, whatever it is you got, I need it. Whatever it is that's going on in your life, whatever it enables you to sing praises to God and your God hears you and sets free, that's the God I need. Where does that come from, folks? That comes from praising God in adversity. That's what he saw. Whatever you got, sir, what do I have to do to have that life you have? Do you have a life that other people see and go, what do I have to do to have that kind of life of peace? What do I have to do to have that kind of life of joy? If not, then you got some questions to ask. I'm not trying to condemn or be hard. I'm just saying, you know, maybe you're not living up to walking in all that God has for you. If you're not experiencing, hey, what we see here, it's possible. Paul and Silas are no different than you and me. What must I do to be saved? Now, Paul, surely to that said, oh my goodness, I don't have enough time to tell you. I mean, you need three years of seminary to figure that out. I mean, that's a way complicated question. There's no way to, no. If someone was to ask you that today, what if you went to the downtown mall with us and we were witnessing on the downtown mall and someone said to you, what must I do to be saved? Or you'd be like, ah, I don't know. Uh, Romans Road, Romans Road. What is that? What is that? Romans Road. How does that go? What would you say? What does Paul say? He doesn't say, well, you know, there's baptism, there's circumcision, there's tithing, there's church membership, you know, there's all these things you got to do. He doesn't say any of that. What's he saying? And by the way, it says, though they said, Silas too, they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your whole household. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just believe in, believe that he exists, believe that he at one point was a good teacher or did some things or believe that he is somebody, but believe God, put your trust in God and become a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what trusting means. It means I'm laying down my old life and I'm picking up my new life. That's what it means to believe, a belief that inspires and moves to action. That's the kind of belief, confidence, trust. Believe and you'll be saved, you and your whole household. And that's still the same word today for you guys. If there's somebody here and you don't know the Lord, and maybe you've been taught it's this complicated process and all these steps. And I learned this past week up in Washington, D.C. that you remember the story of Princess Pocahontas? Did you know she became a believer? She got saved. And actually, she changed her name to Rebecca. She changed her name to a biblical name, which you don't hear in the history books. She becomes Princess Rebecca. But before she did that, she came to be saved. She wanted to be baptized. They said, no, no, no. We want to make sure that you know what you're getting into. I think it was like three years. She had to study the Christian doctrines and learn all about the faith. And then she came back and said, yes, this is what I want. I want to be a Christian. So I appreciate that. Like, don't get involved in something you don't know you're getting, what you're getting involved with. But there was none of that with this Philippian jailer. You believe. And if he truly does believe, 
if he truly does put his trust in God, God will take care of the rest. Discipleship is primarily God's job. And then we come along and we help in the process. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he took them that same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into the house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. So it didn't just change his life, it changed the whole family's life. Moms, dads, when you guys get saved, change your whole family. When the head of the household becomes a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. Doesn't that change the household? And that's how it was for this guy. He got saved. He then encourages his family, affects his whole household. What a difference in his life, too. Now, the wounds he inflicted, he's now helping to clean and dress. Beautiful change, this Philippian jailer. Verse 35 says, And when it was day, the magistrate took the officer, saying, Let those men go. So wait a second. When it was day, we what happens next? Like, we forgot about that. Cleans up the wounds. It's the middle of the night. Has the Paul and Silas over to his family's house for a midnight snack. And then morning comes around and they look at each other like, well, what do we do now? Back to the prison. I assume. Let's go back to the prison because you're still officially prisoners of Rome. So I imagine they go back to the prison because then the officers send to them, we don't know why, and say, hey, let those men go. So the keeper of the prison, verse 36, reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. You can't get let go from somewhere you aren't. So they must have put the shackles back. I, they were probably a little gentler when they put the shackles back on that time, right? Oh, how the Lord changes people. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Paul's got gumption. Let them come themselves and get us out. I like this. You see, they were Roman citizens. It never came out during the first trial whether Paul kept it silent or whether the crowd was in such a frenzy that it never got heard. But it was illegal for a Roman citizen, for Paul, to be condemned without a trial. Illegal. And these guys could lose their jobs and maybe their heads because of what they'd done. So now Paul lets it out. Oh, by the way, we're Romans. I'm a Roman. And now it's like, uh, uh-oh. And the officers, verse 38, told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Doing a little backpedaling now. Uh, uh, uh. Paul makes it a point to say, hey, we're not just going to leave secretly. We want you to publicly acknowledge our innocence. Why do you think he did that? Was, do you think Paul was, had a guilt complex about that, like felt bad about it? I don't think Paul cared personally. But I think Paul wanted to make sure that in that city, there was an exoneration that the news he brings, the religion that he brings, is not just some, another cult or a sect of Judaism. He wanted it to be exonerated in the eyes of the people there to give this little church a foothold without fear or worry that they're going to be persecuted initially. So they're ushered out of the prison. Verse 39 says, Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So they don't leave the city right away. They will head on down the road, but they go to the house of Lydia. This is where the Philippian church is meeting in this woman's house. What a construct of this early church. I love it. I love to look around at the church and see the people and hear your stories. Fantastic. So here's the first church in Europe. The first member is a wealthy woman who sold apparel. 
sold expensive clothes, who just simply gave her heart to the Lord. The second member may be a demon-possessed girl. She's the first part of the youth ministry there. She gives her life to Christ. Her demons are gone. She's set free. Then you've got this Philippian jailer, this military commander from the past, and now he gets saved. And his whole family, there's his kids in the children's ministry. And then maybe other prisoners that were there. Maybe some of those prisoners that stayed got saved too. So here you've got the first church. A demon-possessed woman that's been set free, a clothing apparel salesperson, a prison keeper, and a bunch of inmates. That sounds about like Calvary Chapel. I love it. And if you read the book of Philippians, you'll never read it the same if you think about Lydia and the jailer and the slave girl. When you read that book, and you think about those people that he's writing to and how supportive they were of him and what a relationship he had with them. It just changes the way you read scripture. You know, I pray that the Lord puts a song on your heart. If you come to church, you go, you know, I'm not really singing. I don't really feel like singing. Then maybe you need to have a conversation with the Lord about that. Because the spirit in you wants to sing through you. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Maybe you're quenching the spirit of God in your life by not singing to him whether it's in adversity or good times, I pray the Lord would put a song on the heart of the people of Calvary Chapel, Flu Valley. Amen? Amen.